Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Theology Thursday. That was weak. Are you laughing? Well, dude, that I got to say something other than, okay, <laughs> ever since Isaac roasted me about it. Wait, okay, but speaking of, you're not going to get me distracted so that we don't bring up the thing that we need to bring up. <laughs> That's all it was. Which is, so, someone who's, you know, watches this show often, uh, you know, came up and, and sent me a message and basically said, hey, you need to go a little easier on Kevin. You know, you're kind of being... Little too mean. Little too mean. I said he's got it easy, man. He's got he's got a good life. He just sits behind the screen, presses the button. All he has to do is start the song on time, and that's happened about fifteen percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then before we went live, Isaac was like, Kevin goes, I think he meant to help me, but this person who did this actually hurt me, if anything. Oh yeah, big time. And Isaac said, Well, it's like when someone's mom says to the bully, like, Hey, be you know, go easy on little Billy. And I said, so in this analogy, <laughs> Kevin is a bullied child, and the person who came to his defense is Kevin's mom. This is correct. Yeah, and I'm the bully, and I'm just going to, next time I see him, I'm going to say, oh, little Timmy. Your mama had to. <laughs> yeah, this, this is not bringing out the best in any of our personalities, I don't think. No. You know, I'm looking at us on the monitor right now, and I'm just going to say, we both look very tired. Think this that's is how true. I always look. <laughs> uh, no comment. So, um, and on that note, actually, I wasn't intending for this to be a lame segue, but um, on the note of us being tired, we got Easter coming up. And so we wanted to let you guys know, after tonight, we are going to take a three-week hiatus from Theology Thursday. Um, all of our kind of Easter production is going to start to kick into gear next week. And so that's going to make the three of us... Um, extra busy. So we're going to take a few weeks yeah. off at Theology Thursday. We're stopping in the middle of the series. So we've got more to talk about after this. We're going to talk about if the Bible is anti-science. We're going to talk about some of the violence in the Bible, talk about some of the kind of exclusive, like, you know, one way or the, our way or the highway mm -hmm. kind of elements of Christianity in the Bible. So we've got all of that coming up after the series is not over, but we will take, um, a three week break after this. I don't know why when you're saying that, like when you talk about the Bible, this Bible that I almost said, talk, take a look at the recipes in the Bible. Take a look at some of the recipes. I, and then, then what immediately came to mind, this is, some of you might remember this if you're, you're OG old school Christian, but back in the day there used to be, um, and I'm sure they're still around. Actually, I know they're still around. They're just not around in, in California, the Bay area, but there's like Christian stores. Yeah. Berean. Yeah. Like Berean Christian bookstore. And they'd have like Bible bars and they would have like a recipe, like they're like th th made with all the fresh ingredients mandated in the scriptures from the oh, promised land. Dang. And it have like pomegranate dates in it and stuff like that. Olive oil. Oh yeah. Just all of that Some stuff. Locusts maybe if you're lucky. They didn't have those because they knew that th like if they really wanted to, to teach you in holiness and sanctification, they would, but yeah, they are there like, um, there was mints. Oh, testaments. Testaments. Yeah. They were like little, <laughs> That's so cheesy, dude. I can't believe that came right back when you said yeah. mints. They were like little square mints that had a cross on them. Yeah. And help me remember, did every mint have a verse reference or just the box that came? I think just the box or something. Yeah, they were, you know, I don't know if that's... But that's the other episode, recipes in the Bible. Recipes in the Bible. It kind of brings up the Daniel fast, which yeah. is still around, where yeah. it's like, if you want to get healthy, you just eat what Daniel ate. I'm like, if you read the story... The only reason that worked is because of like God was blessing them in spite of eating yeah, and I'll an tell intentionally you what, meager diet. If you go on the John the Baptist diet, you're going to drop some weight real <laughs> quick, man. Well, I can put down a lot of honey. I might I might gain weight on the, yeah, the John the Baptist diet. We fast. have eight uh, grasshoppers together. We have. And Kevin, you be, did you eat grasshoppers with us? Yes. 
and Pastor Juan. We Cha- went and Chapulines. Chapulines from a. a oh no, I didn't have that. But you have had them before. Yeah, I think Isaac had a melange. Oh yeah, I brought bugs. survival bugs. Oh, that's that's <laughs> those are bugs to eat in a survival. That's situation. way worse because yeah. these the ones those I've ones had are great. all like fried. They up were with good. These were, and these were for survival. Hey, just you know, a pro tip here. Honestly, cooked well, insects are delicious. You have to get over the idea of what you're eating, but the actual flavor, bomb. Kumbi kumbi. Kumbi. Yeah, kumbi. we've all been in places where they, for instance, kumbi kumbi is termites in Tanzania. Um, in Tanzania, and it's a lot of it is psychological because I. I could eat termites by themselves way easier than I could when there was termites in the rice. Oh, and it was like the psychological thing. It was like seeing the bugs in my food did something where like my, brain's, bug in my, my brain's going, there shouldn't be. <laughs> but when it was just literally catching flying bugs and eating them raw, I was like, it's fine. That's no interesting. So, yeah. Anyway, on that, we should probably move on this topic, but. That's how you, that's how you know you're professional when the way you transition is to say transition out loud. You yeah. say the word transition out loud. Um, Here's so, a womp womp coming womp, from Kevin. Womp. Uh, oh, that's that's just that's just a little goodie waiting to be. I missed the that's dining. True. That's, that's just true. a little sound of a snack. The meta. So okay, it's always awkward to transition from just the jokey banter to a pretty serious topic. Which yeah. dude, this whole series is serious topics. Yeah. We, next pretty week heavy. or in, in three weeks when we come back on. Uh, April 8th, I believe, um, we'll be, you know, moving into something that's a little bit less heavy. Last week was super heavy. If you weren't here for it, we talked about slavery and tonight, um, is another pretty heavy one, but just because of the kind of cultural weight of the perception of the Bible around these issues, the question we're asking is, is the Bible anti women? Is it a misogynistic book? Um, and this is something that in culture is really, really prominent. I mean, if you read Dan Kimball's book that this is based off of, he shows some memes. He talks specifically about a story of a guy who made the news because his back bumper of his truck or his entire back tailgate, actually, he had written, um, you know, know your Bible, women stay silent in church. And it was this first Corinthians mm-hmm. passage. And people originally were mad at him, but he was he was kind of making a statement against the Bible by putting that there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of it's a common perception by people who are um, in opposition to Christianity is that this is this outdated misogynistic book look at the stuff that happens to women in there um no christian who cares about women could honestly take this book seriously um and so i mean and and here's the thing like with some of the other issues we're looking at there are plenty of verses that just taken at face value without context at a plain reading absolutely sound like that right Mm -hmm. i mean stories where horrible stuff happens to women and men treat women horribly and then even in the new testament verses that again by themselves are like Dang, Paul did just say women are to be silent in church. What's up with mm-hmm. that? Um, so, and and also, it's definitely true historically that like slavery, the Bible has been used to mistreat women, misused yeah. to mistreat women in history. Abs- that's absolutely yeah, true. Yeah, to this day. And so the, the point that we really want to make tonight is that understanding the Bible correctly and reading it well will illuminate the fact that the Bible is is not only not anti-women, but the Bible is a, a pro-women book of um, that that really like highlights women, loves women, and especially in its cultural context is moving the ball forward towards greater and greater respect and dignity towards women. Yeah, I would say that if you have a desire for the fair treatment of both men and women, that desire was given to you by thousands of years of Judeo-Christian value 
instilled in you whether you like it or not and that's been a common theme a lot of, of a lot of their ethic ethical questions that we've wrestled with is the very measuring stick that we use was a gift given to us by the Christian narrative, the big picture that the Bible is presenting. Without it, you wouldn't hold to many of the, you, you think you just, wo- that people just wake up and ho- hold these moral truths. It's like, no, you, you, you've received those and they've yeah. been instilled in a culture for a very, very long time. Yeah, and if you look at human history and frankly, um, present human cultures all over the world, it is not a given that men and women are equal. That's something that you see, thank God, all over the Western world and all over the kind of Judeo-Christian influenced world. But we would argue as a direct result of what you find in, in scripture. Yeah. And that starts at the very, very beginning. And this is a, an area of scripture, the very, the first chapter of Genesis that your doctoral work is in. You've done a ton mm-hmm. of specific work in this area. I've been to a, a number of even weddings that you've performed mm-hmm. and you, uh, you put a big amount of emphasis on kind of when mm-hmm. you're talking about marriage and a husband and wife, you go here, you go to page mm-hmm. one of the Bible. So what's going on? with this Genesis one twenty seven humanity and made in the image of God thing? Well, the creation, there, there's there's a, a lot there, but the creation of men and women is is ending a long repetition of, of, of a pattern that's established so that in the creation account, you have functionally different equal opposites, two things that are different, that are equal, but meant to come together in oneness and unity. So you have light and darkness, land, sea, sun, moon, birds, the animals in in the heavens, and then fish, the the creatures in the sea. And so what happens is, is that there's pairs and these pairs are different. The sun is not the moon, the moon is not the sun, but they come together and form a day, if if you will. Um, So they are functionally different, but equal opposites. Meant to work together. Meant to to work together. together. And ultimately the, the first, the first mention of that pattern is heaven and earth. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth are, are, functionally different, but they're meant to come together in this marriage. And, and in fact, the, the ending of our narrative in the scripture is the coming together of heaven and earth. And that's actually what the garden was. And I don't know if yeah. we'll have time to get the into dwelling it. place of God is with man. Is yeah, the exactly. Idea. That's, that's how the story begins. And the end of the story is, is going there. So when you reach the climax of that pattern of creation of function, different equal opposites, you have the creation of man and woman. And uh, the Bible is very specific. It says man, woman, and they are both made in the image of God. We talked a little bit about this last week, but image of God was something that in the ancient world was primarily reserved for kings, for pharaohs. Uh, What the Bible does is it democratizes the image bearing. So before, the only one who actually stood in place of God, who bore his image, was royalty, and specifically the king, sometimes the queen or some, some elites. But the democratization of the image of God is what has taken place in Genesis. And it's very, very clear. And it stands out in the documents of the day that both men and women bear the image of God and are created as equal, functionally different, equal opposites, meant to come together. Hugely unique in the ancient world, right? The idea that men and women both, not just independently, but specifically that together, it takes man and woman together to actually represent what God is like to create. Yeah, I mean, it's... People just read men and women being made in the image of God. And again, the Bible just took massive leaps just in a verse because again, Pharaoh was that, not you. Yeah. Now everybody is that. And the reason why it's everybody in the Bible makes this clear is even after Adam and Eve are gone, their descendants are said to be made in the image of God. So this kind of universalizes 
the importance and dignity and inherit and innate value of all human beings. And it's an interesting statement about the two genders because it makes it clear that that in order for, Adam by himself did not image God fully until there's male and female in the image of God. Just like it takes day, just like it takes uh, morning and night to make a day. Yeah, and it's a little bit confusing because in Genesis 2, you have the creation of Adam, Adam and he's sort of naming the animals and then it says not good for man to be alone. But in Genesis 1, it's man and woman created right there and Humanity. they are made in the image of God. Um, so, you know, even without getting into the nuance of order and timelines and stuff like that in Genesis one, man and woman, the end of the functionally different equal, functionally different equal opposites pattern. And it's the climax and it's the, the creation of both of them being made in the image of God. And then you have right there in Genesis two, something that gets misunderstood as misogynist itself, but is actually the opposite where at, well, like we just said, Adam's by himself. God yeah. says, it's not good for man to be alone. We should make a helper suitable for him. And in English you go like, Okay, great. Page two of the Bible, God's calling woman man's helper. Yeah, and the like, joke I've always made is like, it depends on what your view of helper is. Like, if you grew up eating hamburger helper, then right. you're like, dude, this is lame. <laughs> well, it depends. Kevin probably loved hamburger helper. Kevin, man. could you give us an opinion on hamburger don't helper? Knock. <laughs> hamburger helper. Yeah, you like man. it? I don't know if I've ever had hamburger helper. That's shocking to me. I probably had it. You probably had it. If any other of my parents are in the chat, feel free to tell me if I've yeah. ever had hamburger so, helper. But it, again, it's like, it depends on what 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 influences your understanding of that word helper so if it's merely like adam was he was lonely and he needed a sidekick he needed a helper because he couldn't take care of it by himself he's too tired at the end of the day to do the dishes yeah he's too tired and that's that's the sort of that's the joke that's version. the misogynistic sort of like well god knew adam needed someone it's like the hebrew word for helper is azer and all throughout the Bible, Azar is primarily not used of women. It's primarily used for God himself. So who is man's helper? It's God himself. It's not a weak, diminutive word that kind of says, I just need a little sidekick to do the chores that I don't want to do. That's us reading sinful desires back into the yeah. ancient text. But for its time, Genesis is saying man was lacking a strength. He was lacking something. He was insufficient in and of himself, and he needed an azer, a strength. And again, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, azer is primary used of God. Yeah, you so, have that famous verse, I yeah. lift my eyes up, up to the mountains. Where does my azer help, come where from? Where does my help, where does my azer come from? My azer is the maker of heaven and earth. So, And this is someone who's looking to the mountains for a rescuing army to come and save him from yeah. the horrible situation he's in, and he needs a helper. Yes. And, and that's the same word that the Bible starts off applying. Yeah. So Eve is the Azer of Adam, the, the strength that he did not have in and of himself. He was lacking. It's awesome. And you get that even from, uh, it's interesting because it's another thing we'll probably, we might end up talking about this on the, is the Bible anti-science episode, but there's this idea that God puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib and uses that rib to create the woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the questions around that are scientific ones. Like, is that really like the way that God would choose to, but there's this idea and it, this is true. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in rabbinic thought, especially, but it's there even just in the word that the idea is not necessarily one rib bone, but the mm -hmm. idea is that it's coming from the side of Adam. Yeah. And the rabbi said it's because he's not, God is not creating someone above or beneath, or beneath but someone 
it's a to part the side out of. of the side. Yeah. And John Walton, when he really unpacks the the language and kind of how it fits in ancient Near Eastern linguistics and culture, he said he paints a picture that you're almost supposed to picture God dividing Adam in half. That yeah, it's pulling and, well, the a side. There's a reason for that is because, again, most people don't look as Genesis 1 as they're not searching for patterns because they're so focused on scientific modern questions like what's the exact timeline and how could how could day four happen when there's the creation of the solar bodies, the sun and moon, right. when God made light. So you're, you're wrestling with modern questions that the, the ancient text isn't first and foremost concerned with. So, for instance... In the first six days of creation, you see God separating and gathering. So it's not it, it's not as if on every single day God creates this and then he creates this. The theological terms, uh, creation ex nihilo, I mean, he creates out of nothing. So it's not like, and then out of nothing he made this and out of nothing he made this. Some of it is God separated the blank from the blank and thus was formed. Yeah. It's about the creation of order and goodness and function yeah. from disorder and chaos. So it's from the same substance of human there's another human pulled from the side which is yeah. a beautiful image and we're kind of you know we're, we're saying we're spending a lot of time here and rightfully so because it's the foundation of the entire narrative and you have to start here because this is genesis 1 and 2 is a picture of how god wanted it to be yeah similar to last week where the yeah. ide- the ideal is set and when you get to jesus in the new testament they're looking back to the ideal oftentimes what people will do is they'll look at fallen behavioral patterns in the Bible and be like, see, look at the Bible. And it's like, that's a historical recounting of several bad things that happened. It is not telling you this is what it ought to look like. Yeah. And the closest you get to this is what it ought to look like is male and female. He created them in his image. She's taken from his side. She is his as There is absolute equality of value between the two. Naked, not ashamed in the, the temple of the the garden that that's probably a whole nother yeah dude episode, we could, we could do a whole episode the, on that the, the garden is uh is a mini temple it's the place where heaven and earth overlap it's uh on a mountain god's it's, got his image in there yeah there's a lot going on and there. it's and the idea is man so powerful that humanity starts with male and female equal together in harmony there is no kind of fighting against each other and it's in the fall that you get your first hints that there's going to be tension between the sexes now. Yeah. And um, we can actually, maybe we could pull that, that verse up. If you pull up my, uh, my Bible screen here, Kev. So Genesis three, after, after, um, Adam and Eve eat the fruit and God is laying out the curses. One of the ones he says is really interesting and there's tons of debate about it. Cause it's, it's kind of a strange thing to say, but to the woman, he said, this is God, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. This is, by the way, after he's already told Adam, you're going to sweat and toil and work the ground, and the ground's going to work against you rather than with you here now kind of a thing. And then it says this in the second half of verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And you can see there's even a footnote there because it's a really strange and difficult Hebrew word to translate that gets translated different ways. Um, It says it could be, contrary to some translations will say towards some Mm -hmm. translations will say for and so there's a lot of debate about what does it mean that her her desire will be for or toward and clearly the esv here has taken an kind of interpretive decision in saying the desire is going to be kind of in opposition to Mm -hmm. and then the second line but he shall rule over you and that's 
I'm interested to hear what you think about that contrary to or towards word, but the point here is that man ruling over women is part of the fall. It's a consequence. It's a consequence of the fall, a result of evil and rebellion and selfishness. One of those results is man ruling over women, meaning you don't have that. And the idea is that it's going to be a bad rule. Yes. And as it plays out in the Old Testament, it's not like you have these wise. I mean, that's true of everything is that the type of leaders you get aren't the type of leaders you would want. Yeah. And you already see that with Adam. I mean, what's the very first thing he does when God goes, what happened down here? Adam goes, she did it. Yeah. And then she goes, the snake did it. And right away you have, you're going to have this desire toward your husband and he is going to rule. So what do you think's going on? I don't know if you have a strong opinion about what's I going on with that. I don't. I don't have a strong opinion what's going on. And those, those, um, well, I do. <laughs> it's more of, we don't, do we not have time to get? Yeah. You really have, I mean, I don't want to exa- I'm not exaggerating to like try to act like I, the, <laughs> As you mentioned, the first couple chapters of Genesis set, they create the, the narratival world that the rest yes. of the scriptures will take place in. You could read and reflect and meditate upon Genesis 1 and 2 every day for the rest of your life, and you'll never, you'll never exhaust it. It's just like there's just, just so, so much there. But I think suffice to say for this episode, um, there's a consequence that happens where now there is tension and friction between men and women. And it's not going to play out good historically. And a kind of hierarchical striving that happens as a result, which is interesting. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's about ruling over as a consequence. And you immediately start to see that play out narratively. I mean, like, and these are some of the stories that you see playing out narratively are the ones that opponents of the Bible will be like, you believe in Christianity? There's the story about Judah, you know, one of the heroes of the Bible who, you know, impregnates his daughter-in-law after his son has died and he thinks she's a prostitute. And then even though he's the sketchy, gross dude, when he finds out she's pregnant, he wants to have her burned alive. Like that's the yeah. religion you want to believe. But the point, and we've made this point multiple times in the series, like Isaac said a minute ago, this is a reporting of what happened. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. And you are supposed to learn a lesson from it, but the lesson you're supposed to learn is that Judah is whack. Yeah. That's the whole point is Judah is, and Judah, by the end of the story, Judah is openly admitting his shame that he's made mistakes and not to get too nerdy, but part of what, what happens is immediately after that story, you flash back over to Joseph in Egypt, the brother of Judah, who's at the same time making all of these like wise decisions related to women. Potiphar's wife is trying to get with him and Joseph's like refusing that at all costs. So you have this contrast going on, but the point is we could list story after story of men being horrible towards women in the Bible, including people like Abraham and people like, um, I mean, all of them. Yeah. And again, they're playing out the narrative that's found in Genesis one and two. I mean, probably the the perfect example, I don't know if we were going to go to this later, but it might be worth looking at now is right after Adam and Eve fall, the next like characters we're introduced to is a guy named Lamech. Well, you get, you get some other characters, but um, like an immediately, right? Right in, in a few chapters, you get a guy named Lamech and he's, polygamous or at, at, he has at two, least two wives, two wives. Um, and he has this poem yeah should we read it yeah let's read it it's Genesis 4 this is, I mean this is really good because immediately after God says this is going to be the consequence this is what you're introduced to and the more you study the Bible just as a side note you have to get more and more used to the idea that the Bible is going to teach you things without saying it in your face 
So it might not say, hey, polygamy is bad, don't do polygamy, but it might have one of the first overtly evil characters be a polygamist. Yeah. And so here's his, here's his poem to his wives. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So you get this Lamech, he's a bad dude, and he's like, you wives of Lamech, listen up. I'm the man. I kill people. And we, I think we mentioned this before, but he's one... God relates to Cain after Cain murders Abel and says, like, no one's going to get you, Cain. Otherwise, it's going to be sevenfold justice type of thing. So Lamech is trying to one-up God by saying his revenge yeah. will be 77. And he's taking that, this is an interesting biblical theme, he's taking that prerogative upon himself. So God yeah. doesn't tell Cain, hey Cain, I'm going to put a mark on you and it's going to make it so you can kill anyone yeah, who tries exactly. to kill you. God says, I will take he, vengeance he's on anyone. Being, he's taking the role of God and then poetically saying, I'm going to do better. I'm going to outdo God yeah. at vengeance. And, I'll, and he's saying that in poetic form to his wives and he's telling them, listen to me. Listen right up. Now. So right out, out of the gate, you get this sort of bad, bad treatment. Um, and then as you said, again and again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it just goes on and on and on. And you're seeing the consequence of the fall yeah. spiral out of control. Until you get Solomon who has a thousand wives. And I mean, this is, again, it's hard for, for if you grew up in the church to realize Solomon, you're not supposed to think that's good when Solomon has a thousand wives. Yeah. You're actually supposed to remember in Deuteronomy, when God said, your kings are not to multiply their wives, like mm -hmm. that's going to lead to bad stuff. Um, but even in the midst of that, it's, it, you know, we talk about how you kind of are seeing the patriarchal, and that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in the modern mm -hmm. world, but I mean really actually patriarchal, misogynistic, ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. um, and you're seeing things play out within that context. But even in those parts of history and those parts of the Bible, you have God elevating women to positions of prominence and leadership all along the way over and over again in yeah. ways that are, they're not weird to us as modern people, but they are bizarre. Yeah. The, the modern world. complaint would be how come only 15% of those judges yeah. in the old Testament were women when you have to understand for the, a big chunk of human history up until very, very recent in the big picture of things, everyone's going, dude, how's the Bible have like 15% of these people? Yeah. Why, why are we getting Deborah who, by the way, is a prophet, the judge of Israel, and a military leader. Yeah. She's showing up the male leader in the same story over and over again. And her story also culminates in the evil king getting killed by a woman. So there's kind of the symmetry of that. Yeah. That's, the, that's the lady who um, drives a tent. JL is her name, right? She drives a tent peg through the bad king's head. Isaac seeking sponsorship from Zevia again. Not a word from Zevia yet, which I'm, I'm shocked by. Um, maybe it's because you guys watching haven't advocated for us strongly enough yet. Just so you have getting Deborah. stood up by Stevia like Kevin Curzon at 16-year-old prom. <laughs> it's messed up. <laughs> Who'd you go to prom with, Kevin? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody asked him. That was such a, this is such a weird diss. <laughs> Kevin's happily married for decades. <laughs> yeah, but how'd 16-year-old prom go, Kevin? He's alone, man. I hated prom. I think we're alone now. But it's just me, it's Kevin, just by me myself. Hanging by the punch bowl. Hanging by the punch bowl, no one to talk to. Yep, man. Prom was just, how can I avoid dancing for this whole situation? <laughs> Kevin's, Kevin is cracking up. Kevin, put the camera on you just so people can see you. <laughs> you can see you dying. It's like, 
What's that even have to do with anything, Isaac? You're just talking about Zevia, and then you got to be mean to Kevin. You go from Zevia, which is all the way from the complaint to be nicer to Kevin. You're responsible. Whoever. Yeah, thanks, you're, Jacob. You're welcome, Jacob Serpa. <laughs> or thank you, Jacob Serpa. I don't know. Yeah. So Deborah is one example. Um, another one that's really we were looking at this before we went live, but Miriam, who is the sister of Moses and Aaron. When the prophets, spe specifically Micah, recounts the Exodus, yeah. Miriam is listed right alongside Moses and Aaron as one of the figures who is the result of the <laughs> Jacob's advocating for Kevin again. Jacob, don't it's only you see? Making it worse, don't man. you see what happens when you do this stuff? It's <laughs> <laughs> making it worse. <laughs> Look, Kevin's Kevin's uh, <laughs> Kevin's so wor worked up he can't even capitalize the right number of letters. <laughs> um, okay, so but that's. Very, very interesting, and again, stands out. You have Micah recounting the Exodus, and he goes, who, who did the Exodus? The, the people who led Israel out of slavery yeah. are Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Yep. And normally, I'm telling you in the ancient world, you do not mention We wouldn't, do, like, eat, today we just go Moses. Moses, yeah. We wouldn't make it our, like, point to include the other two people. Yeah, and you cannot overstate how big of a deal that is in the ancient world. I mean, we could do, we could do story after story of this in... in um, there's this crazy story uh, with King Josiah, who's one of the few good kings late in the time of, of Israel, where you actually have some good kings showing up. Um, things have gotten so bad in Israel that they rediscover the book of the law in the temple as they're doing like refurbishments of the temple. Mm -hmm. They're refurbishing the temple and they find the law and they read it and they're, the, they're like tearing their clothes because they're like, we haven't been doing any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And when they need help understanding what's in there, they go to Hulda a woman who's a prophet who knows how to help them interpret the scriptures. And Scott McKnight talks about this and talks about how he basically just says, you have to understand it's not like there's no other option in Israel. This is just the person yeah. who's chosen as the authority yeah. on who can we go to, to help us understand what's written in this ancient book of the law. It's a woman named Hulda. And again, we're talking about when's Josiah King 2,600 years ago, ancient, ancient times. Yeah, and again, for a number of reasons, but, in many accounts, even if it wasn't true, you would just say, and then the king received insight from heaven because he is the image bearer and right. he lacked nothing in his understanding. So again, it's it's doing more, it's including others outside of the yeah. the, the image. And, and again, then and we do, that, like you said, dude, we do that now. It's like, we don't know who writes the speeches of the politicians who give up and make, get up and make it. It's like, yeah. so-and-so said, it's like, we don't know who the speech writer was or who yeah, they went exactly. to, to. So the Bible really does go out of its way and we could there's there's whole books written about characters like ruth and esther who are these like valiant examples held up of this is what a good person a good human in service of god does um who are women um but we should jump to the new testament because we're already half an hour in and we got more to talk about everybody okay in the chat we, we, we this is an intense chat it's there's something kevin there's something about seeing the chat named south valley community church I know, man. Telling Come one of on. our church members to shut up. I know, man. I, uh, man, this has become uh, a mockery of itself. I don't know why we have this guy around. Jacob or Kevin? <laughs> don't answer that. All of uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> Every last one of you. You know what's amazing? The restraint of Kevin is that he's always one button push away from, from being just, grouchy. A lot of people don't know he's real grouchy. It's true. But, he did, but look, he's just... Are you, it's a front, man. Kevin, you, got, you you had your finger on your unmute button. What were you gonna say? <laughs> the one thing you can say with confidence is that no one gets this much hate unless they're really loved. 
unless they're Kevin. Yeah. So the it, jump into the New Testament, um, and this is something that that again is it's not necessarily something that gets enough attention in these discussions. Is we'll, we'll go straight to Jesus because he's obviously he's the the chief figure in our belief system, but he's also we're talking about how the Old Testament is radical with how it treats and talks about women. Jesus takes that absolutely to yeah. the next level. And again, I know we keep saying this, but it's really important. You'll read stuff that Jesus does and it will not stand out to you as unusual because you are not a Jewish rabbi in the first century, yeah. Greco-Roman Jewish world. Um, but the, the historical context of Jesus, women were not generally treated with dignity and equality compared to men. Mm -hmm. Wives aren't, Unmarried women aren't. Um, I mean, there's that famous, from within Jesus' specific context, that famous rabbinic prayer that says, um, remember, it's found on inscriptions and stuff. I think you're the one who told me about it, but it's it's like, thank God that he did not, praise be to God that he did not make me a Gentile, yeah. that he did not make me a woman, a woman, and that he did not make me like an idiot or whatever the yeah. third one is would be translated as. And so it's sort of like, it's just like this incredibly offensive to us. Yeah. Like the thing I'm most thankful for is that I'm not Greek that I'm not female and yeah. that I'm not dumb. Like, mm -hmm. and those things all go together. So you have this kind of weird, you know, race stuff going on, obviously. And then also this, um, and again, not race in the way we would conceive of it now, but this kind of ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. And then gender is a huge part of that. And the, and the Greco Roman world is not any better in terms of how women and wives and such are treated. And so all of that makes it so that the way that Jesus treats women is remarkable. And just jumps yeah, and the out gospel writers are writing in such a way to draw your attention to it. Yeah, they want it to be there. We're just missing it, as you said, because we've had two thousand years of inheriting these stories and sort yeah. of getting used to them. What you just said is so important, by the way, because this is one of the most important things you can develop as a Bible reader is the ability to see the author as you read. Because we typically, at least for me, I grew up reading the Gospels, and you feel like you're just reading like an unbiased like transcript of a video of Jesus talking or whatever. And you forget that there's a layer between you and Jesus, which is the author who picked the stories that he chose. To, they didn't tell you all of them. I mean, John in his gospel says there's so much more stuff Jesus yeah. did that if I wrote all of it down, it wouldn't even fit in all the books in the world. Yep. Um, and so they're picking stuff to show you and over and over again, they pick stuff that highlights the way that Jesus interacts with women. Yeah. So one example of this is the fact that Jesus, who is called a rabbi, has female disciples and interacts with women regularly. I mean, this is crazy, right? In the first century Jewish context. Yeah. I mean, we know there, I mean, it's important to distinguish because there's disciples and then there's like the 12 yes. disciples. Yeah. Helpful. And you could say, Hey, like the 12 disciples, they, those were all dudes. So when you mean disciples is there was women at the feet of Jesus, which was the, the kind of posture and position of a student to a teacher. Um, and that just wasn't the norm. It, it would have been radical is that Jesus is taking these people and they're, they're learning at his feet, just like the, the dudes would have. Yeah. So you have like one example of that is Mary who the famous story of Mary and Martha, where Martha's the one kind of running around being super busy and like working and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And there's this kind of back and forth. And the focus of that story ends up being on like, well, Mary's doing the right thing because she's focusing on Jesus and not, mm -hmm. but you miss as you read that, that there is a woman sitting in the posture of disciple, yeah. Before a rabbi. So most, you know, we don't know every single detail of every single Jewish rabbi, but most Jewish rabbis would not have women sitting at their feet with the men. Yeah, there's certainly a diversity of thought, and there were some that were more in their treatment far better than others. Um, so there's diversity, but it wasn't 
anything as we would understand it today. And look at this verse, Kevin, if you can pull up my screen from Luke 8. Again, it's the kind of thing you just read and blow right past. But just this kind of narrative note. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Yeah. So Luke's saying, again, out of his way. He does not have to say that, but he includes a bunch of women are there, and some of them are the ones financing the whole operation. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, you have, especially in the Greco-Roman world, you do have kind of wealthy women business people, and some of them are the ones who are paying the bills. They're, for fun, the they're funding group. it. Yeah. And the fact that, again, they're, they're included. The, the normal kind of reading would have been, and the 12 disciples were with them. Yeah. But it's Luke is making it, the gospel writers are making it important to include the women in the kind of band. And using their names. Yeah. And you have Mary Magdalene. We have a woman named Joanna. And, and Kim and mentioned others. the Samaritan woman. Yeah. And that's great a great example. Because go ahead and pull it up. Yeah. That's from John 4. Because it becomes specific there as well, and John, so it's the the biblical authors have ways of using highlighters, if you will, and the way they'll use highlighters is repetition or by like kind of pointing something out or emphasizing something there or including stuff in the narrative that they want you to see. And one of the shocks that takes place in the Samaritan woman story is that Jesus, a male Jewish man, is talking to a female Samaritan. So he's like going double duty on that. It's yeah. Jews and Samaritans don't talk and then men and women wouldn't talk at the well like this. And the fact that he's there at all is odd. I mean, a Jewish person at this time traveling from place to place yeah. would go the long way to avoid Samaria. Yeah. So Jesus isn't there on accident. Then he goes and he sits at this well, Jacob's well, which is kind of cool. I've been to. Have you, did you go there when you were in Israel? I'm too old to remember. We, <laughs> a dude, this is a true story. A dude on my trip, I went there for seminary for three weeks dropped his passport into Jacob's well for real. And this is a big deal because when you're at Jacob's well, you are in the West bank. So you have to leave Israel and go into the West bank. And so it's like, it's you show your passport when you cross over. I don't even know how it happened, but this dude's passport, uh, Paul, if you're watching, which he's not, I remember your passport. They got it out somehow, which is crazy. So anyway, that's, that's, my memory of of Jacob's well, but pull like up a this, weird. I, it was a yeah. mortis, like a a siren, or like a, a, I was like, I thought Kevin was playing music for a second or something. As a, as a result of yeah, as, a, as a response. A <laughs> so okay, so a couple of things that are interesting. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink." For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This is this is worth noticing. The Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria?" Yeah. So, so she, that's the author's way of highlighting. Like, here's the narrative. Look it. Don't miss this. It's a woman. And he goes on to not just like have a casual interaction with her, which already is breaking all kinds mm-hmm. of social boundaries because they're Gentiles and Samaritans and the fact that she's a woman and he's a man. But he discusses theology with her. He's one of, she's one of the first, if not the first, people for who, to whom he reveals his messianic identity. Yeah, and so again, so this, this, this is super important. To your point earlier... When the Bible wants to make a point, it often doesn't say, here is the point. Or if it wants to make like a, a, a law or some, if it yeah. wants to establish an ethic, it doesn't say, this is ethical code number 4222 type, type of thing. It'll, 
tell you a story. It'll tell you a story. And by the way, human beings learn better through narrative than just a bunch of laws right. anyway. Um, and you remember it better too. This is why your, your kids can, can watch a movie and learn the lines pretty quick. So she becomes a non-Jewish evangelist. Yes. Very, very early on in the ministry. So this is John's way of saying like, he's like winking at you like hard. Don't you get it? Jesus is choosing a Samaritan woman to be one of, if not the first evangelist to the Gentiles. Yeah. She goes into the village and says, come in here about a man who's told me everything about myself. And when he comes back to Samaria later, a bunch of people are expecting him and know who he is and like want miracles and stuff. Yeah. So it's really, really outstanding. And there's other stories like this where it's, you know, the demon possessed Gentile guy yeah. in the land of the Gerasenes is another example of go tell people about unclean me. man becomes an evangelist. And so there's, there's this last shall be first thing happening all the time, but part of it specifically in this story. And by the way, as the story goes on, I mean, this is the point that Kim was making. She's not just a Samaritan woman. She's also a Samaritan woman of shame. And she has a shameful background. There's a reason she's drawing water by herself at the wrong time of day for women. Yeah. Many of you have heard all this stuff before, but he, he goes to kind of what that his society at the time would see as the bottom and, and elevates her. It's really, really amazing. Now, one we could give more examples of Jesus and his interaction with women, but one of the ones that is most significant and, again, easy to miss is the fact that women are the first witnesses to the resurrection in the gospel accounts. So Jesus, when he resurrects, the first people to hear about it are women. Now, you might just say, well, that's just what happened. They just happened to be the ones who went to the tomb that day. Yeah. But why? But it's more significant than that. Yeah, so a cu couple things is one of the, the strongest historical arguments for the, the kind of the historical accuracy of the gospel accounts is the fact that it includes women as the first eyewitnesses. In, in the time in that time you needed two or three witnesses to establish an event but by the and that's that's from the Old Testament by the time you get to the time of Jesus like well it's got to be two or three witnesses and they got to be men yeah. type of thing a man is what counts as an eyewitness and what the gospel accounts are doing is is going like no no no, no. I know this is how the whole world the whole world operates like I mean think think about this so the crazy. whole world operates like this and the center claim of the entire Christian faith is the resurrection. And the first eyewitnesses During are the, the women because they're going there to at least check on some things. Yeah, the dudes aren't, by the way. The dudes aren't. And if, if you were going to make something up, if you're going to make the resurrection up, you wouldn't make it up and go like, oh, yeah, and the first people who saw the resurrected Jesus were women. If you're going to make it up, you would say they were men of various educational backgrounds. Yeah. Um, you just wouldn't make up that story in that manner. So in the fact, rest even the if it really happened and you were being calculated and cunning and saying, okay, we have to write this yeah. thing to convince the world that Jesus really rose from the dead, you know, the second person was where Peter, the Peter and John went up right after. So let's just start the story there. Yeah, and there's evidence that that might have... that within the, the first decades of Christianity that one of the early formulas for the gospel and the resurrection was that, and then Jesus appeared to Cephas and the disciples yeah. type of thing was because there was already a slogan within a couple decades that Jesus rose and he appeared to Peter. But the gospel accounts, the scriptures are going, nah, get the order right, man. The first people were women whose, whose witnessing of that would not even hold up in court in the day. Mm. I mean, that is so powerful, dude, like that, that happened and then that the gospel authors preserved it. It's, it's so clearly a part of the point. Yeah. It, and it's, 
It's not just in there a little bit. The, the gospel writers are saying it and they're making it abundantly clear. Yeah. And one of the accounts, it's it, it, they're naming the women. They are talking about interactions that Jesus yeah. has with Mary. Um, and so it's a very, very powerful thing to see that because we're not just talking about a miracle of Jesus. We're not just talking about when Elijah did this or this happened to Noah. We're talking about the central claim. And by the way, by extension, the most influential historical event. Yeah. And who? And so the very first people to announce the resurrection of the Son of God are women going and telling the rest of the disciples. This is what we just yeah. saw. And that's, dude, I'm telling you, oh, I'm not telling you, I'm telling everybody that the fact that Jesus chose to reveal himself that way and that the gospel authors chose to put it in the Bible is an absolute intentional empowerment of women message. There's just mm-hmm. no other reason to do it. Um, super powerful. So let's talk about Paul. Anything else to say on that before we jump, move on? No. You're t- I'm tempted to just keep saying it over and over again, just because t- we want you guys to see how profound that is. But I do want to talk about Paul a little bit. And we've only got 15 minutes left because Paul is the one who gets a bad rap. Mm-hmm. We talked about Jesus, but most people aren't going, well, Jesus was a misogynist. Even people who aren't Christians feel a little awkward probably saying that. Um, although it was interesting. I saw an apologist once say, I wouldn't, you know, this is a kind of spicy way to argue it, but he's like, find me another center center point, like, you know, figurehead of a religion that you'd rather have your wife or daughter or sister hang out with than Jesus. And I was like, dang, that's pretty good. But anyway, Jesus typically doesn't get the bad rap when it comes to yeah, this. Yeah, and again, with the, uh, and we, we're going to get to this in a moment, but Paul is writing for specific situations and he's writing to churches. With Jesus, we're just seeing his treatment. So you're yeah. observing, and again, that's the power of narrative, is that you're seeing his on-the-ground treatment of women. You're seeing what the gospel accounts are saying and recalling about these events, where Paul, it's it's different for a number of reasons. It's not retelling historical events or recalling the narrative. It's Paul writing to specific cities who have specific situations and concerns and sort of doing a mix of like, remember what this, remember that, and don't forget to do this. Yeah. And, and you hey, you asked me about this. Here's the answer to your question. Yeah. Sometimes you don't even know when a question has been asked. He's yeah. just, but he is addressing. There's times when you'll be reading Paul and he'll say, now about blah, blah, blah. Now about meat sacrifice to idols. And you don't know that that's his formula for formally responding to a question yeah. from a letter he received. But it is interesting that when you do see Paul in narratives, he's working with women all the time. And that's something that I think it's because he's the guy who it's like, look at all this horrible stuff Paul says about women. And we'll, and we'll really, we should have time to briefly walk through one of the things that gets yeah. called out a lot. But Paul in his actual ministry, it's like Jesus. He's getting some of the benefactors who pay his way in ministry are mm-hmm. women, women like Lydia, who Luke and Paul, they stay at her house for a while while they're doing their work. Mm-hmm. And she helps to pay for, for some of the work. She, he's working with Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, all these different people. Um, and the interesting thing is in his letters, and then we'll we'll run and kind of jam through a verse after this, but it's worth pointing out. At the end of all of the letters, one of the kind of standard things to do in conclusion is send greetings to all of your people who are in that region who mm-hmm. you want to say something to. And so Paul's letters often end that way where he'll be like, hey, say hi to so-and-so, greet so-and-so, tell this person this, have this person bring me this the next time they see me. And so he's listing all these people who are significant to him in that area. And people who are like co-workers with him in ministry and tons and tons of them are women. I mean, that's, this sounds like a minor detail, but it is so significant because this is when you're getting closer to the narrative, like 
what's happening in Paul's actual life. Yeah. Because the, the way Dan would probably put it in his book would be like, isn't Christianity just a boys club where like all the people who are working and making the decisions, they're just a bunch of dudes. And it's like when Paul lists his co-laborers, people who are working and striving along for the work of the gospel, there's men and women and tons of women. I mean, I should have probably like taken at least Romans and just seen what percentage are women. Mm-hmm. Cause dude, it reads like it's like half of them. Mm-hmm. And some of them are incredibly significant. I mean, Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila are um, a husband and wife who do serious theology, theological work in the book of Acts and then get named by Paul in Romans. I mean, there, there's this orator named Apollos who's brilliant, but he has some theological confusion. And again, Luke in, in the book of Acts specifically says, both Priscilla and Aquila. I'm, I'm pronouncing his name both ways. You say Aquila or Aquila? Well, it doesn't matter which right. Aquila sounds way more tough. Yeah, that's true. Aquila. He's Aquila. He's Aquila. So you can name your child. Like, I need a good biblical name. If, for those of you who are expecting children. A, like, but do it like A-K-I-L-L-A-H. This is Aquila, man. Aquila the Hun. So... It's also, and you know, you, you don't want to overstate something like this, but it's an unusual formula that every time this couple comes up, she is named first, not him. Yeah. And that, and that does stand out as being odd and probably means that she's kind of the preeminent one in terms of the gospel work that they're doing. But you can't, you know, you can't rest too much on that, but it is unusual. Um, I mean, my, my daughter's name, my, my baby daughter is named Phoebe, who is, and she, and she is specifically named after a woman who's named just in one verse in Romans, but the the way that Paul introduces her or talks about her, he's commending her in a way that's the formal way that a letter writer would endorse the deliverer of the letter. Mm-hmm. And that's in Romans 16, meaning the letter to the Romans, one of the most important documents ever written in human history. Mm-hmm. The person who delivered it to Rome was a woman named Phoebe. She's probably the first person who read it aloud to the church there. Mm-hmm. And we don't know anything else about her. She's probably a businesswoman who's, for some reason, she's going from where Paul is to Rome. Mm-hmm. But it's like, dude, this is an incredibly important task yeah, to entrust someone to. You get, you get entrusted with the sacred task of delivering Holy Scripture to the church in Rome. Yeah. And Paul's not going, no, 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 no. I don't care if Phoebe's already going yeah. there. Get me a man. So Paul, in his actual life and ministry, works with women all the time, values them, has messages for them. Um so, man, we only got 10 minutes, but let's move. You want to look at 1 yeah, Corinthians t- 14, 34? I don't know what it means. <laughs> That's how we end. We'll just read it and be like, I don't know. So I wanted to talk about this one. If we had a, you know, a three-hour show or an entire series about this, we could walk through multiple ones of, of this. But this is the most common example you see in memes saying that the Bible is misogynist. Paul says this, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, so again, if we had time, we should read the entire chapter and kind of talk more. Yeah, again, just I'll say this, is that whenever we do these things, they're they're an hour, and we don't have time to go over every last thing, but we always want to be honest and be like, we could have just ended it. See, the Bible is the most... (laughs) It's, but it's like, there are these hard passages and we want you to see them. We want you to be exposed to them because it's, it's in the Bible. And it's hard, dude. It's hard not to read that as a modern person and be like, Oh yeah, that feels, that feels bad. Um, but again, a couple of important kind of historical context notes here, the letters of the new Testament, as Isaac just said, they're being written to establish the brand new baby church in the new Testament era. So you've got 
There's no New Testament for them to go look at. It's being written and lived out as this is happening. And most of these letters are what we call occasional. So you have the drama and confusion of Jewish Christians and Gentile converts, people who have lived separately for millennia, who are now being told you got to come together and figure out a way to live together. And there is just endless drama caused by this. Yeah. And so a huge percentage of Paul's letters, Paul's not like an ivory tower theologian going, let's see, I've got time to write a letter. Let me lay down all yeah. of the essentials of Christian doctrine for all time. And he's right. just strapped to a pole and flogged for the third yeah, time, exactly. dragged out of the city beat. And the spirit of God is convicting me to go to a new city and preach the gospel where I'll likely get beat yeah. and kicked out. And in between those two things, I got a letter from a church I planted last year. Yeah, exactly. And, and the letter says things aren't going well, Paul, there's this problem, this problem, this problem. And then you, he said, you need to, to help us. And so Paul beaten and believe again, this dude, you have to think picture Paul this way. You read his letters so differently when you do, there's an incredible book by N.T. Wright called um, Paul, a biography that really, really helps you see the, the, fact that this dude is a pastor and a missionary and a mm -hmm. church planter. So, and specifically with Corinth, this is a place where Paul spent a year and a half establishing the church. And then he moves on and does, he's, like Isaac said, he's going through trials and tribulations in ministry. And he gets word specifically that things are not going well in Corinth. Some things are going okay, but there's whack stuff happening in Corinth. And a lot of the letter to the Corinthians that this verse is a part of is him addressing that like very specific occasional situations. So like, there's a lot of whack stuff. Dude, just a couple. We'll do a couple examples. So keep it PG. We'll keep it PG. Yeah. Okay. Let's not do that example that I was I know gonna, I just led you. I was like, there's a lot of whack. Yeah, that was I, my way of saying same. And then I'm like going, maybe we, you know. Let's just say there's a guy with an inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law. Yes. No. With his stepmother. Yes. And, and the church in Corinth is embracing that. They're not yes. even bothered by it. Another one, this is the wackest one, is what's happening with communion, right? Yeah, the first one's pretty whack. Th that one's whack, but it's like it's easy to be like, well, there's some whack dude, and no one called him out for it. Okay. But the whole, but like the church okay. in Corinth collectively, when they get together to do their big communion meals, because communion was a meal at this time mm -hmm. in church history, there are people who, for social reasons, or f we don't know for sure if it's about like money or social status or what, some people are showing up, eating all the food, drinking all the wine to the point that they're drunk. And meanwhile, other, their fellow Christians yeah. are showing up hungry and desperate for a meal and don't yeah. even get to eat. Yeah, and most people. likely, we don't know, like you said, but most likely the rich can get there early because they're not working a nine to five. They get there early. They're not. Throw down. They have food that they can have access to, but they throw down. They're eating all the food. They're getting drunk. And the guy who's poor comes to worship and to have communion and, by the way, probably get a meal. Yeah. And he shows up and everyone's like, everyone's drunk and there's no food left. I mean, that, that's crazy. That's man. crazy. Kevin did that once. No, I'm just kidding. That's too far. Too far. Um, <laughs> so the reason we bring all of that up is because Paul has already addressed these things and many others before he even gets to that verse about women that we just read. And so there is a very, very good chance that he's addressing a specific situation happening in Corinth. Yeah, well, and again, to what we just shared, we don't know exactly. Paul didn't say, all these rich people who don't work right. nine to five, we are having to put together the historical backdrop. And so in many of these situations, the historical backdrop is easy. You have enough puzzle pieces to put it together. And some of them, you don't have any, you don't have much. So it becomes much harder to interpret. The good news is, is that those verses are very few. Most of the time we could paint the historical yeah. backdrop. The problem is 
even though there's only they're, they're the minority, some of those are actually some of the most hardest verses, as in this. Yeah. One. There's other there's and there's others again that we could look at, but but here are the two keys that I would say to this verse, and they're not. It's not like an easy open and shut answer, because again, like Isaac said, we're not we're not about that. We want to be honest and present you guys with the the tougher stuff too. Um, so these aren't open and shut or easy, but there's two crucial things. One. There's almost certainly a historical situation in Corinth being addressed here. And two, and this is the crucial one, Paul cannot possibly mean all women have to be utterly silent all the time in church. That can't be what he means. And we know that can't be what he means because at other places in this letter that have already happened, he has talked with approval about women speaking in church. Mm -hmm. So he talks about, he's giving regulations for how women are supposed to prophesy when they're in church, presupposing that they are. Yeah. Meaning... Women prophesy when they're in church. They speak out loud. Include All the spiritual gifts are not gender specific, meaning mm-hmm. his big list of all these different ways that people can serve in the church are about men and so women. They're worshiping, they're praying, they're prophesying. They're, they're singing, they're doing... They're, they are participating in the service in a full way, including speaking. Mm-hmm. So when he says women are to be silent in the churches, we don't. we frankly don't know exactly what he means, but we know he does not mean women have to be utterly silent the whole time they're in church. Yeah, and there's, so there's, I mean... We don't have time, but I'll, I'll give you a, a few. Like some people interpret it. Some people would say Paul is talking a, about like a, a spirit of quietness, something yeah. uh, similar to if you go into a library, you're supposed to be quiet. And the only reason why he's singling out women in this passage, some would argue, is that Christianity is so inclusive that you have all these people being educated. And so you have all these women who for the first time are getting taught the religious text and they're just there's so many questions and there's confusion that's like, Hey, no, we got it. We got to keep, we got to slow down and do this here and do that. So there's that people would say that some people would say that, um, there is kind of friction between Jews and Gentiles yeah. in there. And so, Hey, we can't do this here. Da, da, da. So do it at home. It's the do point. Do it at home. Is that at, at the point? So, and again, the, the, the po- a possibility, like you just said there, is that in general, men are going to be more educated than women in this thing. So there might have been a problem happening in Corinth, which is that women who are being included alongside men in church for the first time are disrupting service because of questions they're asking during service. And he's saying, handle that at home because we got to have a spirit of quiet learning demeanor in the church. Yeah. Um, Another possibility that's interesting is that they were they were practicing um, the kind of model of the Jewish synagogue, which kept kept men and women separate, mm-hmm. and so it could be that this was a particular problem either happening in that section or the, there was kind of crosstalk happening between the women's section and the men's section yeah. during church. And he's saying, do that at home, not during church service. What what you need to know is first what what Sam said is that whatever's going on, it's occasional and it can't mean silence because Paul's presupposing women are talking and praying and worship prophesying. Secondly, the whole reason why there's a problem is because Christianity was so attractive yes. to women in the first century world. Christianity was extremely attractive to the poor and to women. So and the, to slaves, by the way. And to, so all the people who were marginalized in culture saw Christianity as this new thing that they could finally be a part of. So whatever is specifically going on in that, it's taking place in the context of the much larger picture where every group that's been kind of marginalized or put out is now saying, no, you can come in. Um, 
And that's probably the reason why Paul is specifically talking about women needing to be silent because there's something, again, with you got Jew and Gentile drama, you've got rich and poor drama. I think there's a very good chance in the early church because so many women are being included in ways that they normally wouldn't have been. You have men and women drama as well mm-hmm. with just in the midst of service. But like you said, it's the opposite of misogyny in the time that, man, so many women are flocking to this religion that it's causing problems that need to be addressed. Yeah. And we don't have all the, the backdrop to understand that, but we know with certainty, you look at the big picture of scripture and kind of wrapping it up yeah. is the ideal is men and women are made in the image of God. You see women heroes throughout the old Testament. You see Jesus including women in ways that were radical at the time. You have the early Christian slogan of there's neither male nor female Jew, Gentile slave, nor free. So you have all of this. And then these, uh, to be honest, there's a v- very few troubling passages. And when you interpret those in light of the big narrative, the ideal established in Genesis, the patterns established by Jesus in his earthly ministry, the patterns established by Paul in his ministry, you could you could kind of work your way to an understanding of that. And there's different, interp- different interpretations, um, but the big picture is abundantly clear. And all of that to say, again, Christians, Christianity's treatment has led us to the point 2000 years later where these passages bother us. Yeah. They didn't bother people. Right. Back in the day, the allowance that was being given is what bothered people. Yeah. That was what caused problems. And so you have from Genesis 1:27 to Galatians 3:28, the thing you just said about male female. The entire picture of scripture is without a doubt God, Christianity, the Bible are for women liberating towards women, elevating of women, um, and absolutely not, as the question we posed at the beginning said, anti-women. Yeah, and the sad thing, just like we talked about last week, is it just takes way too long for humans historically yes. to get there, is the Bible lays the foundation, f- and, and, and it, it gives the soil for these plants, this fruit to, to come to bear, but humans are just uh, notoriously and historically evil and prone to sin and prone to, if you have power, you kind of use it to, to hold people down. And that's been the story. But again, it's the Christian narrative that subverts yeah. those types of behaviors. And, and as Christians, we want to be the people who challenge the evil and misogyny that we still see in the modern world for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And be, because we believe male and female were equally created together in the image of God. So... Cool, man. I think we did it. What do you think, Kevin? How do you feel about it? We're two minutes over. Already. We're two minutes over. Hey, we're going to take a three-week break. We'll see you guys on April 8th. We'll be back talking about whether the Bible's anti-science. Thanks for being here, guys. Have a good night.